2: What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, And as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How are you feeling? I'm doing great. I'm feeling on the edge, but
3: like, I think mentally I'm just broken. On the edge of glory? I was going to do it, but then I held back because I was going to really go for it. I know. Don't limit myself. Never. Never. but, yeah, I just feel i I put a lot of things into one day, and my brain isn't really there. Yeah. I'm hoping it'll show up at some point. It always does. if And if not, it'll have me talking about literal shit and just <laughs> keeping track at home. That's three weeks in a row.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I yeah. I, I feel like somebody's going to have one of those um, episodes since a shit reference. And it's going like, to tear it down. Yep, tear it down. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, listen, you know what? I think you're doing great. <laughs> That's very kind of you.
3: Yeah. For a woman who didn't even bat an eye when it was, okay, well, we're ready to record. And the Zoom pops open and I'm sitting over here in a goddamn Buzz Lightyear sweatshirt. And I just went.
2: It is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Listen, I don't question anything yeah. that you do. You know what I mean? I I assumed there yeah. was a good reason. And if the reason, if the good reason was just you didn't want to change, that's enough for me. I was cozy. Yeah. I was cozy. I, I had a shower uh, late
3: afternoon because we spent part of the day at the pool. And then after that, it was just, I just didn't have, I'm not going to say I didn't have the time. I just didn't have The energy or the fucks.
2: (laughs) I was going to say the will, but yeah, the fucks. Well, you know, I probably would have stayed in my clothes um, had I not spilled Thai food all down myself when I was at Mm. the studio. (gasps) Uh Recording with the band.
3: (laughs) I couldn't be happier that your birthday led to this revelation.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, I am I feel like everybody on who, who's listened to the show would know. But if you don't know, uh, for my birthday this year, I I hired a band and I fronted the band and I put on a, a yeah. show, a rock concert of cover songs. Yeah. And uh, the band was so great and they were so lovely. And the, the one gentleman said, do you write music? And I'm like, well, yeah, but like I don't ever play it for anybody. Like I just write it at home or whatever. And he's like, well, if you ever want to work on music, like I'd love to hear it. So I went over there a month or so ago and played him my songs, and he was like, that one, that song is good, and it's close. Like, it's close to being where you need it to be. Let's work on it. So for the last, so then I went back, and we we kind of worked on it a little bit together, and then last week, we went in and recorded with the whole band, and I got to tell you, I beamed the whole time. At one point, I caught myself smiling too big, you know? <laughs> I was like, like, (laughs) they're going to think you're creepy. Like, don't like tone it down. Like, don't (laughs) show so many teeth. You know what I mean? Hey, like you said to me, don't stop yourself. You're right. You're right. Let the joy be there. I just, I'm glad I didn't catch eyes with any of them. (laughs) Sure. You know what I mean? Like, I'm glad (laughs) there was like a barrier where they didn't see me like literally looking like, you know, like a creepy doll. Um, But anyway, today I went back and i was recording the vocals for my original song. We've also done a cover song and i'm not going to say what the song is yet cuz no, i want it to be a bit of a surprise. Of but um, we were recording the vocals for my song. Uh we're going to have one more day of of doing some uh work on that and then it's going to be mastered and then the song's going to be ready. So i'm aiming to have this thing up for pre-sale on the iTunes By like early May. Oh.
3: That's that's exciting.
2: Oh, that's That's only three weeks from now. So I'm like, we got to, and I'm being a taskmaster. I'm literally just like, we need to schedule this. Like, what are we doing? Like, how long is it going to take you? Like, but I'm just a firm believer that I've had so many projects over the years you get an idea and you, you talk to somebody, you're working with somebody and you don't, if you're not, like, you know, I pushed us into this so hard and I was like, this is what we're doing. This is the timeline. We have to do it now. Yep. And look how this turned out. We're 122 episodes in. I'd say hey! we pretty darn good. Yeah.
3: Right? But I absolutely understand the world of you have so many ideas and then it just falls away. It falls if away because- If you don't keep at it, if you don't
2: use it, you lose it. <laughs> Thank you for that callback. rip the page down. That's two episodes. (laughs) But yeah, I I do think that that is the one thing that I've been really trying to do with this is that I'm like, I don't want to just be all talk about it. Like, I actually want to do it. And I think I was inspired by myself, I may add, that I did that for my birthday. That I was like, this is my dream. This is what I'm going to want to do. And I had faced a lot of adversity planning that party. I had venues canceling. I had a lot of issues logistically, but I, Fucking pulled it off. You know what I mean? You did. And so I see that and I go, you can do that with this too. Why not? Why not? Yes.
3: Oh, you're an inspiration. Oh,
2: well, bless you. I mean, you
3: were like, you know what? I'm going to turn 40 and I'm going to make fucking dreams come true. Yep. I mean, come on. And look, we you and I have been text talking about making dreams come true nonstop for the last few weeks. We well, really pretty not. much since your birthday. You're right. We're like, what other dreams are there? Let's do it.
2: Let's do whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You only get one go. You only get one kick at the can called life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I- That's... You Maybe only, the title of my album. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You only get one kick at the can of life called life, called which is life. in brackets, of course. Of course. Um, of course. Nope. But I got to say that the last thing I got to say is that I think what's really amazing because I, this is what I've learned I'm musical, I'm not a musician. And people say, don't say sure. that. I'm not being negative about myself. When I've been in going through this process over the last, two, three weeks and I watch these unbelievably talented musicians and they just hear things in their heads and then they can play them and they oh, they yeah. all come together and play this song that that started as this dinky song that was three chords on that I poorly was playing. and now it's a real song. Like I can't tell you how like truly magical and wild it is. That it's like, oh, that little idea I had became this giant thing and I'm so grateful that I have met people that are so talented that were able to elevate it because I never could have done it on my own. And that's, again, that's not me being negative. That's me saying that it's like, it's a real group thing. And I tend to, I prefer group work. I always have. I, I, not, not in school, but I preferred, <laughs> you know, improv and sketch over stand oh, okay. up. I was prefer- like- Literally, you show with when
3: you? ever else would you have done group work outside of school? I like that. Yeah. It sounded like an
2: orgy. I did not mean that. I'm far, I'm too, I'm being too earnest and innocent, but well, yeah. Be- keep in mind, only some of us grew up watching Grease 2 and got <laughs> hyper-sexualized at a young age. <laughs> he just explained so much about her. It um. Anyway, that's, that's yeah. the last I'll say, but yeah, keep an eye out. Listen, I'm going to be screaming it from yeah. the rooftops. Pre-order yes! my single- of wouldn't course, you' laugh if people bought it, <laughs> why wouldn't they? Because I don't think anybody buys music anymore, but what I'm saying is it's like a dollar a dollar twenty
3: nine I'll buy one on every goddamn laptop in my home. Bless you, <laughs> Of Bless course, you. it's gonna happen. by the way, two things: one, thank you for dinky. <laughs> I liked, I did not expect that word to come out and it made me laugh and really filled my heart with joy. And two, you made a comment. I was so taken aback by Dinky that I did not write down exactly the quote, Um, but the comment about like, who would have guessed that you had this idea and that you could take it so far? You said it yourself, Lady Jane. You are the one that was like, we should do a podcast.
2: And here we are, 122 episodes later. <laughs> You're right. And I will say that that was only because I forced it so hard. You were very excited. Yeah. Very excited. And yeah. I went,
3: oh, no one's going to want to hear me talk. And now they would prefer you to me. So <laughs> oh, I, I don't think I'd say that. I, uh, I really, I feel like I've really taken a turn Uh in the last month mentally like i feel like i'm on another planet so do i i mean again i've the collections i've started this year alone she has a new one dear listeners in the last week yeah
2: yep yeah.
3: but that's the joke i haven't even told them about the one i got obsessed with before that there have been so many yeah <laughs> that i just i don't have time to bring up every single one yeah it's a problem, but I have reverted back in your keeping with dreams. I mean, this isn't really much of a dream, uh, but uh, nostalgia yeah. has hit me. And I'm like, what did teenage and young Christie like to do? And one of her favorite things in the world was looking through my hockey cards. My very first set, the 1990-91 pro set. Fuck, I, bu- I. so the other day I bust out that binder. And I went through those pages and I touched those cards <laughs> so gingerly, very creepily. Ever so coolly. Uh, I of course, thank you for that. Uh didn't of course, not even close to the whole set. I have ordered large chunks of these cards uh on eBay to try and fill in the set. So my living room is full of binders. Um and my, my husband got so into me looking at these cards that he went and got his from his youth. And we went through them and I went on eBay and finished off one of the sets. Because there was only six cards missing from that set. So I got very excited. And I'm now trying, I've decided I'm going to try and finish all of those sets. I have about six different sets, some from early 90s. And then when I got back into it in the early 2000s. And, and 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 then I may have ordered um some twenty twenty-one, twenty twenty-two cards.
2: Cause they're cheaper than the current ones. It uh, should also be noted that Christy yeah. was going through this in real time with me, like using text messages and voice notes. So yep. I was kind of yep. hearing all of this happen and yep. um <laughs> you know, she's sending me these voice notes or whatever. And then the voice notes kind of go from like you know, I was thinking about this. I'm, I'm just going to look and see what they have. And then like the next one, she's like, okay, there's a beginner's pack. It comes with its own binder and there's four different kinds of blaster packs and then blah, 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 blah. She's going, whatever. And then I, by the end of like 10 minutes, I, I finally texted her back and I said, you know, a half an hour ago, you didn't even know what a blaster pack was. Or blaster box. Yeah. I don't know if I'm using yep. the right expression, but it is box, but yes. I so so let okay. it go. Yeah. excuse me. Of course. But that's what I yeah. really loved was I liked mm-hmm. getting to just experience it in real time. Like what yeah. like as the how fast it goes. went. Yeah. 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 Cause it was yeah, about it was, I would say from idea to the the first order click being made, it was about 23 minutes, I think, in total.
3: Yes. Oh, it was it was bad. Uh only because I found some on sale. Because I was yeah. like, "Oh, these things are, these things are a little pricey, but it's okay. I'll, I'll just let it go." And then I found a site where they were on sale, and I was like, "Ah, oh, no." Well, I've purchased five blaster boxes, and I just <laughs> couldn't be happier. Uh, the, uh, tracking said it was going to arrive Monday. I was very like, "Oh, but I want it now!" Jokes on me! It arrived early. It's currently in my home. I have plotted out my afternoon for tomorrow. I have to get stuff done in the morning. And then that afternoon, I'm going to open those cards. I'm going to see so many players I don't know because I've gotten out of watching hockey because I haven't had time. But look, us going to a hockey game in that California trip uh, reminded me of my love of the sport. And now I'm back knee-deep in cards, and I couldn't be happier. I have so many cards coming to my home it's gonna be a problem and i said to my husband i was like just so you know like there's gonna be cards coming to the house he's like i thought you'd want to be ordering those and i was like oh yeah but let me be clear um i also ordered a new set from like 2021 22 and he's like why would you okay like he just knew he was like don't don't question it because again it boxes happens
2: we're on sale
3: It happened so fast. It did. Also, I want you to know when they came, I did open it. Show it to my 18-year-old. Keep in mind, he is 18 years old. I held it up and went,
4: look! And then they just go right in! And it's the front matches the package!
3: And he was like, "Uh uh-huh. Didn't I have something like that when I was little? I'm like, yes, but this is my... Isn't that ex- I just wanted him to get on board and be excited, but he was like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I don't know.
2: What I don't do know? You know." Honestly, it's none of his business. <laughs> <laughs> Great well, the, kid, the, but mind your own beeswax, Poindexter.
3: Thank you for that so much. Uh, the thing I love is these cards. These cards used to be in like card boxes, in larger boxes in like storage kind of a thing. And then about a decade ago, I got the itch again. Basically in the 2020s, every 10 years, <laughs> I'm itching for hockey cards. I was due. Uh, so we bust them out and looking at them, I went through them all. I printed off a checklist online. I organized them in binders, couldn't have been happier. And then they got the binders got put in boxes that got put in storage. And now those binders are in my living room and i've already i've already let my family know they will no longer see the inside of a box <laughs> they're too precious so now i have to find a place in our our home uh to to display these uh these binders so that someone can be like that's a really random like early 90s early 2000s 2020s what's
2: yeah they're too precious is just <laughs> – I, I couldn't be happier. Yeah. I'm nervous.
3: <laughs> that was genuine. I am nervous to open them because I know I'm going to be embarrassed that I won't know many of the players. Give me a week. <laughs> 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 uh, next record, I'll tell you my favorite cards. Oh, fuck. It's going to be the Flyers. We all know it. <laughs> And Carrie Price, if there's a picture of him without his mask on, he's very attractive.
2: (laughs) I think that seamlessly leads into my next question for you, which is, what you drinking over there? (laughs) The Kool-Aid, my dear
3: friend. Yep. The hockey card Kool-Aid. Water, of course, as always. And then, because I heard a little rumor. Oh. That they were back in town. Mike's Hard Lime is back. Oh. I went and grabbed some today just as refreshing as ever. And if they ever leave again, Mike and I are going to have a chat.
2: I will say I am – I'm envious of that. Those are delicious. And I will say also I knew I had a box of High Noons in my fridge and I went to grab one and then I noticed it was just the box, which was empty, which that was a prank. I did not need – so what no. have I done? I've made my own high noon. How? Vodka and a tangerine LaCroix. Hey, that's innovative.
3: Thank you. I expect nothing less from the girl in a band.
2: <laughs> you know, I'm just in a band. <laughs> I sent Christy just a quick clip of the song with not the yeah. not the proper vocals. They were just a tracking vocal, which is not, you know, not fully mixed. And I was redoing the whatever. Sure. And she said it sounded like a Paramore song, and that was the greatest compliment of my life. I mean it. Thank you. I mean it. And then some people today, they were the next session, and they heard my song, and they said that I reminded them of Gwen Stefani at points, and that was an honor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
3: Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, I'm not going to say it here, but uh, as a reminder to you and a reminder, hopefully, to me to say it later— I've thought of
2: another cover that
3: okay I'm gonna get pretty insistent on. I love that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Christy's been really great at. Um, anytime I ever have an idea for like a movie or a script I'm writing, she always sends yeah. me ideas for casting, which is very helpful. <laughs> uh, you know, knows.
3: casting is my main. You're it, so good it, it's at it. my thing. I can't believe I do, haven't pushed to try and do it for a living because I you I would live kill for it. Oh, kill. my God, because I like organizing things in their right places.
2: Yeah. Fuck, that makes sense. <laughs> well, you know what else casting is notorious for having? Hot men. Binders. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and hot men. But <laughs> what I love is that I really thought we were going to say it at the same time. Like, I really <laughs> believed that you were going to say binders also. Yeah. Nope. No, I did not. Uh, anyway. But that's, that's shit. <sighs> Binders. Yep. Oh, there's so much organizing involved.
3: Oh, you know I like that. Yeah.
2: But anyway, yes, yeah. she's also been sending me ideas for covers. And the one that yeah. I recorded, we were noodling on cover song ideas sitting in the stands at the Kings game. And this was one of the songs that came up then. It is. Yep. Again, that game changed our lives. It
3: really did. It did. I mean, now I understand blaster boxes, although if I'm being honest, a hobby box is probably financially more smart deal-wise overall, but the hobby boxes are so expensive. Yeah. And they're practically giving away the blaster box. (laughs) <laughs> they're not it was still pricey but the point is yeah it's the joy that it's going to bring my life the joy it already has brought my life when it when that box entered my home elated i was elated i was sad that it got put in like the community box so i didn't know it had arrived i wish it had been brought directly to my door. I wish it had been like a Purolator FedEx situ- situation because <clears throat> then uh, it would have come to my door and I would have been that much more excited about it arriving. But uh, I especially wish it was the Purillator because I have a very excellent Purolator man who comes to my, my door. I unfortunately do not know his name. I should ask at some point, but I don't know how to ask without feeling weird. Um, the other day... <laughs> delivered something to my house. And we have a rapport. He comes to my house a lot. I have a problem. I'm in severe credit card debt. That's a <laughs> that's a TikTok. Uh, but uh, he dropped something off and he was like, oh, ha, ha And like laughed at the, because I, I, I stared at it and I was like, I don't know what this is. And he made a comment about the company who had sent it. And then I was like, what did I order from there? And I was like, this box is huge. And I ordered something very small. And so the two of us stood on my front step while I ripped this box open to discover what I had actually ordered. And the joke is they just sent a box 20 times too big
2: mm. for
3: no reason. And I he
2: was like, he was there for you. all
3: like- that's in the box? Oh, yeah. He wanted to know. He's invested. He's invested in my life now.
2: I love this. He sees me almost daily. It's bad. That feels like the plot of the beginning of a Lifetime Christmas movie. Someone's getting a lot of Christmas shopping packages delivered. Mm. Sure. Maybe there's a mystery element. Oh, you
3: know I would love that. Write it down. (laughs) Shit. Again, have not forgotten my dream of uh, writing a Christmas movie that actually gets made. Specifically Hallmark. I would like it to be a Hallmark because that's the pure dream. Of course. Of my life because I would... Also like my hallmark darlings to potentially be cast because I'm just going to go with what first popped in my head because that would knock my socks off. I love, <laughs> love to see that for your feet. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're yeah, welcome. that's that's where I'm at. That's where I'm at. I'm just trying too many dreams at once and uh, I'm just trying to corral it into a usable, you know, where I actually don't just think the idea and then it flitters away. Yeah. I'm trying to stay on top of it.
2: I Listen, if I've learned I, anything from you. That's what you do. You learned it from me. Uh, I did. Now, listen, very quickly, before we get into yeah. the case today, there is a small update. Well, I mean, small is a relative term to the Pauline Parker and Juliet Hume episode of the show. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So two weeks ago, uh, we released that episode. Um, and so this is going to be a spoiler alert if you have not heard the Pauline Parker, Juliet Hume episode. But very quick refresher, if you yeah. haven't. Skip ahead like two minutes. Uh, probably last. Doesn't matter. Uh, quick refresher. Um, Pauline and Juliet were like 15 and 16, I believe, respectively, uh, when they brutally, brutally murdered Pauline's mother in New Zealand in 1954. Both girls were sentenced to life in prison, but were released after less than five years. Both girls legally changed their names when they re-entered society. Uh, Juliet became Anne Perry, a uh, popular murder mystery novelist which was a twist I did not see coming. And on April 10th, 2023, six days after the release of our episode, Anne Perry died at the age of 84. Isn't that wild? It's crazy. I do not know her cause of death. She apparently had a heart attack in December 2022, and her health has just kind of been on a decline ever since. Um, but wild. Wild like we've we we did that Jerry Lee Lewis episode and then mu- like a f- 2 3 months later he died yeah but this was less than a week and that that felt interesting
2: yeah didn't see it coming odd synchronicities with the timing for sure yeah mm, for sure for sure yeah yeah well listen on that note <clears throat> oh I'm so sorry Doing great. I had one of those frogs in my throat. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mine is just
3: the hangy ball just immediately dries out. Like you could almost hear like the suction sound of like, it's just dried out. (laughs) And then it's just like, you're choking and you're like, what is happening? That's, that's, that's how I've become elderly. (laughs) Cause I just start coughing and then I get like, oh, do you need a drink? And I'm like, no, hangy balls just dry. Just need a minute. Maybe you should get a humidifier. I probably should. I'll send you we, one. Ha- there is something I don't know what it is. I don't know. There's something that my my husband bought that we're supposed to attach to pipes downstairs somewhere for the home. I think it's like a humidifier. I could be wrong. It could I think be it's easier though to be just- help with like dry air. <laughs> he just has not installed it yet, bless him. He's getting there. Sure, he's getting there. But I think I think we would both benefit from it, yeah. Because he is also like severely allergic to the cats. In my defense, (laughs) he had cats before I met him. He's never been a dog person. We did have a dog, Uh, and after that dog passed, he said the only pets he would ever consider again, maybe cats. And I, I asked for two years, and then got the blessing, and then a week later, I had adopted cats. (laughs) Yeah. It's fine. Again, if they've learned anything from the last 20-some, 30 minutes of this show, I'm quick. When I see something I like, I move fast, I pounce cat-like reflexes when it's something that I love and obsession that I have.
2: I'm thinking about calling my album Cat-like now. (laughs) (laughs) I like that.
3: I like that. Oh, gosh. I thought you'd go with uh, no means no, but some places it would actually be read as Go Kings Go.
2: Oh, boy. I don't think we told that here. I thought we did. I think it was on the last call on Patreon. Either way. Long story (laughs) short, whether we did it or we didn't. They were chanting Go Kings Co. It was Women's Day. And all I heard was no means no. And I thought I was supportive. But anyway. Yeah. Um, I was wrong. Look. I would also
3: be okay if your album was called Blaster Box.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But then people are going to think it's Blast Her Box. And that's a whole other story. Oh, How did I not go there first? I don't know. There are
3: days where I somehow become just pure innocence couldn't even fathom what they mean. And then there are days where I'm just like mentioning dick all the time. Dick all the time? I don't think I've ever done that.
2: No, I have. Mama said there'd be days like this. (laughs) There'd be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Mama said. (laughs) Yeah. Careful, you're going to end up singing back up on a single if you're not careful. (laughs)
3: Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna have to put my foot down on that. It's not meant for that.
2: Yeah. It's well, we don't have to fly you in because I couldn't. I couldn't have you on a different <laughs> mic. It might not work. And you know,
3: <laughs> you also love this. I will, however, accept like a like a Harry Styles. We want to say goodnight to you uh, at the beginning of his song, or like a an Aaliyah where she's got like a baby that giggles. <laughs> like a- Yes, I will also accept being a random sound <laughs> that, gets, that gets
2: played.
3: I will accept that, where I just have to go in and go like, boom.
2: <laughs> I'll keep that in mind for the next track. I don't know if there's an opportunity on this one, but I'll always keep in mind that you're available to come in in Police Academy. <laughs> a song for me if need be. Thank you so much. God.
3: Oh, I'm unwell like, I Physically Physically, Fine uh, Mentally Fruit loops Like I'm
2: Lost my mind Yeah Lost it You're here with me baby We're here together Yeah So here we go I'm trying one more time To get us into this case <laughs> You're doing great Today of course We're talking The Mary Schleiss And Ann Barber Dunlap <clears throat> cases. So, here's a little synopsis for us. Previously on True Crime and Cocktails, Christy announced that the subject of today's episode would be Mary Schleiss. But before we get into Mary's case, Christy is going to take us through the case of Ann Barber Dunlap, a woman who was found murdered in 1995. So not only are you getting two unsolved cold cases from Minnesota, but you're also getting the histories of not one, but three serial killers... How does it all connect? You'll have to stay tuned to find out. Yeah. Uh, I will
3: say, yeah, my apologies, <laughs> I did mispronounce uh her name at the end when I was like on the next episode. Uh, I had not heard the name. I took a chance. I was wrong. So my apologies, I do believe I said Schley. I also love that I could be wrong about what I've just said. doesn't matter. The point is, it is Mary Schleiss, so I do apologize for my uh, mispronunciation. So, a disclaimer, as we do. This episode will contain mentions of sexual assault and physical abuse, so trigger warning for those who need it. So, while researching the case of Mary Schleiss, I came across another case... That I wanted to include in the episode Mainly because it also includes uh, The state of Minnesota So before we get into The case that I mentioned last week I'm going to start with The case of Ann Barber Dunlap So Ann Louise Barber Was born June 12, 1964 In Minneapolis, Minnesota In 1987, Ann married Bradley Dunlap and in 1995, they were living with Ann's parents in Minneapolis while they were having their dream house built in Medina. On December 30th, 1995, around 9 p.m., Brad called 911 and said, quote, this is his 911 call, 911? Hi. I was hoping you could tell me the procedure of who I might call, My wife left to go shopping about seven hours ago, and I have not heard from her since, and I was expecting her back a long time ago. I don't know how they responded, uh, but Anne had apparently arrived home after brunch with friends around noon. Then Brad claims Anne left around 2.30 p.m. to go shopping at Nordstrom at the Mall of America. Brad said that Anne was supposed to meet him for dinner at 4.30 p.m., but she never showed. Police were unable to verify if Anne was seen at the mall that day. When Anne still hadn't arrived home the next morning, Brad called 911 again at 7.30 a.m. He also called the police station twice, but was told he needed to wait 48 hours to file a missing persons report. The next day, on January 1st, Brad arranged for a search party who went out at 8 a.m. and discovered Anne's 1987 maroon Toyota Celica in the Kmart parking lot on West Lake Street, which is about nine miles or 14 kilometers north of the Mall of America. Anne's keys were in the ignition, but there was no sign of her. Police had the car towed to the forensics garage where Anne's body was discovered in the trunk of the car. She had been stabbed multiple times in the head and neck, and her throat had been cut repeatedly. Anne Barber Dunlap was 31 years old at the time of her death. Uh, She was a marketing manager at Pillsbury, who, after Anne's murder, announced that they would no longer advertise their products on violent TV programs. Wow. Uh, According to the autopsy, Anne suffered a blunt force blow to the head, likely from something broad and flat. A broken blade tip from a pocket knife was found in Anne's wounds. Her estimated time of death was between 3 and 3.15 p.m. on the day she disappeared. This was determined based on Anne's stomach contents, which matched the meal that she had at brunch with her friends earlier that day. While there was a lot of blood in the trunk. There was no impact spatter, which means likely Anne was placed in the trunk after she was stabbed. There was also uh, no bloodstains inside of Anne's car and none in the parking spot where the car was found. However, police did find trace—a trace of blood on the garage door at the home of Anne's parents, Don and Louise as well as three drops of blood on the garage floor. Don and Louise both claimed the blood was their own as they each cut themselves and touched the door just days prior. Brad hired a private investigator who said, quote, The mother has cut her hand in the last week and used the door. The father has cut his hand in the last week and used the door. And the brother has cut his hand and used the door. That sounds very coincidental, But one was a staple gun accident, one was a recycle bin accident, so you would expect to find some trace evidence on a door like that. But it's meaningless. And it would have been meaningless if DNA tests hadn't matched the blood to Ann Barber Dunlap. Also in the garage, police found a blood-stained fireplace log, which also came back as a match to Ann, is the log the possible broad, flat item that was used to cause the blunt force trauma on her head? I will also add that there was no other blood found in that garage, and there was no evidence that the garage floor had been cleaned. And to that I say, was there evidence that a tarp or something was laid down? Right. And then, you know, Brad was unable. To provide an alibi for his whereabouts on the afternoon his wife went missing, he claimed he was running errands from 2.30 to 4.30, and that he stopped at a tropical fish store in Plymouth, but it was closed when he got there. The owner of the store claimed the store was open until 5 p.m. that day, and that he had never seen Brad there before without Anne. Meaning, it would be odd for Brad to randomly go there alone for the first time, Brad was also seen at Big Top Liquors in Plymouth around 5.30 p.m. And my question, Brad, is if you were supposed to meet your wife at 4.30 for dinner, why were you at a liquor store 20 minutes out of town at 5.30? Great question. And speaking of things that make me suspicious of Brad, when Ann's car was found, Brad told reporters, quote, It's strange because the keys are in it. I don't know what that means, but I'm just real hopeful that there is something in the car. Maybe fingerprints or a clue. We're grasping at straws at this point. We can only hope and pray. Then he adds, We are as happily married as people could be. We're in the process of building a home right now in Medina. It's our dream house. We're planning a family. It's interesting to me when a person goes missing and their spouse is like we've we're the happiest couple that's ever existed
2: yeah because that usually means you weren't well it also just isn't odd nobody asked brad nobody (laughs) asked brad yeah
3: (laughs) 100 uh police brought brad in for questioning it lasted five hours the interview was videotaped and reviewed by the fbi who agreed that Brad was, in fact, a viable suspect. The FBI added that the crime was committed by someone who knew Anne very well. After that, Brad refused to cooperate with police, as he was just really upset that they con- that they accused him of harming his wife. Mm-hmm. Which is how it works, Brad. Yeah. But... Brad, of course, said he had nothing to do with Anne's death, and Anne's parents fully believed him. They have publicly supported Brad for decades, saying no man would have grieved the way that Brad did if he had killed his wife.
2: It's called acting. Also, are they clinical psychologists by trade?
3: Not that I can tell, no. So? (laughs) Anne's dad said that Brad was, quote, more broken up than we were, if you can believe that. And to that I say, I don't. Yeah. I just don't. I don't believe. I I think maybe he was trying to say he was upset and he went a little over the top. Yeah. Uh, I also want to point out, in case I didn't mention it, but I very well may at some point, um, when uh, the FBI said that it was... likely the crime was committed by someone she knew very well. It's because she had no defensive wounds. So it looked like she did not put up a fight. So someone very clearly surprised her in some way. And they just assumed someone got close enough to because she knew them very well. But police said that it was Brad who told the search party to go check the Kmart parking lot. And that makes me ask, why the Kmart parking lot, Brad? He originally told police Ann left to go to Nordstrom, which is located in the Mall of America, but the Kmart was located at 10 West Lake Street, nearly nine miles or 14 kilometers away. So I ask, why would Brad suggest the Kmart parking lot as the first place for the search party to go? If that's not where she was going. Yeah. It makes no sense. Then there was the issue of a bottle of water found on the front passenger seat of Anne's car. The bottle was Chippewa Springs brand, and it had a unique price tag, so there was no decimal point. Police traced the water to a convenience store on Highway 55 near the home that Brad and Anne were having built. Surveillance cameras at the store showed a man arriving shortly after 6 p.m. and buying a bottle of water. An analyst found the man on the camera to be a match to Brad. Police took Brad to the store and a clerk identified him as the man who visited the store that day. However, a forensic test on the bottle detected. Anne's DNA, not Brad's. But there is also no way to tell how long that bottle of water was in Anne's car. Is it possible Brad took Anne to the house that was under construction, killed her there before taking her to her parents' house, placing her in her the trunk of her own car, and then driving to the Kmart parking lot? That's possible. Did he stop for a bottle of water for himself? Because murdering someone is. Thirst? Like, causes a lot of thirst? Maybe. I'm also just speculating. He also could be innocent. Yep. I don't know. But if Brad was the killer, what's his motive? Well, in August 1995, just three months before Anne's death, Brad took out a $1 million life insurance policy on Anne and then increased his own life insurance policy to $1 million. At the time, Anne already had a $745,000 policy through her work. Brad was an insurance agent who was working as a sales manager at Environmental Graphics at the time. The police believe that Brad killed Ann for the insurance money. However, Ann's parents believe Brad added the new policies. Because he and Anne were planning ahead and their house was going to be worth over $300,000. So increasing the policies made sense. To a million? They each needed a $1 million policy, plus she already had one for nearly $800,000? Yeah. I mean, uh, at this point... I can't decide if the parents were deeply under Brad's spell or if somehow they were in on it. Brad attempted to cash in on the policy, but the Chubb Life Insurance Company refused to pay out because they believed that Brad killed Anne based on his taped police interview. In fact, the insurance company outright said, and I quote, Bradley A. Dunlap, killed Ann Dunlap on December 30th, 1995, as part of a plan to obtain the Chubb Life Policy insurance proceeds. Brad filed a lawsuit against them. They settled out of court in September 1998. The amount was undisclosed, but it is believed to have been about $600,000. In July 1997, Brad quit his job and moved to Scottsdale, Arizona, He has since gotten remarried, and they had two children. Anne's parents, who referred to Brad as, quote, our dear Brad, make a trip to Arizona to visit him every year. As of April 2023, Brad has never been charged with Anne's death. Anne's purse and $10,000 wedding ring have never been found. Interesting. So is it possible Anne's murder was a robbery gone wrong and had nothing to do with Brad? Sure. But then I also ask, where was Anne killed? If she wasn't killed in the car and there was no blood in her car, that means the killer placed Anne in the trunk and cleaned themselves before leaving the car in that parking lot. A forensic pathologist who worked with the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit reviewed the autopsy report and based on the stab wounds, he concluded the killer was, quote, an intelligent and thinking individual, but an individual with no experience at killing. And while police investigated multiple other suspects, Anne's case remains unsolved. And spoiler alert, so does the next case. Hello. Yeah. But again, I mean, I know we'll end up getting into it later, but I just, if it was a robbery, why was there parts of Anne's blood in the garage at her home?
2: Well, I'm also like, was the new house that was being built properly Was it searched? ever
3: searched? Honestly, probably not. I hope so. and i just want to know did you pawn the ring if it was a 10,000 dollar ring in the in 95 yeah that can't be easy to pawn
2: I'd love well to yeah know where that's it the next now. thing too right because regardless of of who had the ring yeah that's something they should be looking for look at pawn shops look on ebay look at you know yeah i mean i know ebay was probably may not have existed then but but those kinds of you know try and find the ring and then you may find the person or at least the person who had the ring yes because also
3: who knows i mean maybe the purse and the ring were taken just to make it look like a robbery yep i mean that's more than possible but again i'm sure we'll get into it later yes so Mary Kathleen Schleiss was born November 4th, 1948, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, to Arnold and Louise Schleiss. She was an honors graduate at the University of Minnesota, where she was working on her master's degree. On February 15th, 1974, Mary left her home around 11 a.m. with the plan to hitchhike to Chicago for an art show. This wasn't unusual. Mary often hitchhiked to save money when traveling. She worked as a live-in babysitter and was last seen by her employer leaving their uptown apartment, heading toward the I-94 with a sign that read Madison, which was about 270 miles or 432 kilometers southeast of Minneapolis. It is safe to assume Mary likely tried to get a ride to Madison as it was the largest city between Minneapolis and Chicago, which is like 416 miles or 670 kilometers away. Mary's apartment was a 10-minute walk from the I-94. She didn't own a car and would often bike to nearby places. However, when it came to long distances, she usually hitchhiked. Later that same day, a man named Dennis Anderson told police he was driving home with his dog from a store in Springbrook Township, Wisconsin. He said that since he had his dog with him, he wanted to take a longer drive, so he ended up driving down 408th Avenue, which is an unpaved dead-end road near Elk Creek in Dunn County. Dennis said when he first drove down the road around 12 p.m., he saw two people fighting in a small orange or gold compact car, which was parked on the side of the road. When he turned the car around and passed by that car again, Dennis claimed in his rearview mirror he saw the man get out of the parked car and dump what appeared to be a female body in the ditch before returning to the car, reversing, and speeding off. Dennis went home to drop off his dog and tell his wife what had happened. He then picked up his neighbor, Dan Murphy, and returned to the scene around 1.15 p.m. When they searched the ditch, Dennis and Dan found the body of Mary Schleiss. The killer had attempted to hide her body in the snow. Mary Schleiss was just 25 at the time of her death. She was was an intelligent woman who could speak several languages and dreamed of becoming a professional artist. She had a passion for horseback riding, a great sense of humor, and was described as sweet-natured. At the time of her death, Mary was working part-time at a custom framing company and part-time as a waitress at the Fujiya Japanese restaurant. She was also a babysitter for a family in Minneapolis, whose house she also lived in. Dennis and Dan went to a nearby house to call police, then went back to the scene to wait for the police. When they returned... To the scene, they discovered that a Culligan delivery driver named Marv Gibson had found the body. They told Marv that they had contacted the police, so Marv went on his way. It should also be noted that this particular road was not well-traveled, so I find it interesting that both Dennis and Marv both happened to be on the road that day that a murder occurred. It just feels a little too
2: coincidental
3: for me. The police arrived on scene around 1.30 p.m., and according to their report, the victim's body was still warm. An orange and black knitted cap, or toque, was found discarded near the scene. Investigators tested a hair found inside the hat and compared it to a list of suspects, but no match was found. And while we don't know if the hat is connected to the crime or not, it is worth noting that orange and black are the school colors of Elk Mound High School, which is about 6 miles or 10 kilometers north of the crime scene. In the early 70s, a local woman knitted similar-looking caps for the school's athletes. But again, we don't know if the hat is actually linked to the crime or was just already there. Uh, The scene, it should be noted, was roughly 86 miles or 140 kilometers east of Mary's last known location. Police took casts of the tire tracks at the scene, but due to the snow, the impressions were poor quality and unusable. Missing from the scene were Mary's fur coat, her knitted cap, and her purse. According to the autopsy, Mary was stabbed at least 15 times in the back, neck, and stomach with a thin-bladed knife. It is believed she was standing when she was stabbed Mary had also been violently beaten as her face was heavily bruised and her nose was broken. Defensive wounds on Mary's hands proved she tried to fight her attacker. The pathologist was able to collect skin and blood from Mary's attacker from under Mary's fingernails. Her time of death was estimated to be around 12 p.m. Witness Dennis worked closely with police to help with the case. He even underwent hypnotherapy. To try and recall more details, Dennis gave police a description of the man that he saw uh, as a Caucasian male between the ages of 25 and 35, six feet tall, 180 pounds, with medium-length brown hair and a thick mustache. Dennis also worked with a police sketch artist to create a sketch of the suspect, which, of course, I will post on our socials at True Crime and Cocktails on Instagram and Facebook, and at Not Detectives. On Twitter, when police searched Mary's apartment in Minneapolis, they discovered a black and white photo of an unknown man. Police believed, uh, police have appealed to the public for help, but the man has never been identified. Mary's family say, based on the scenery in the picture, they believe the photo was taken around Lake Harriet. The man in the photo also looks slightly like the sketch that Dennis Anderson helped create. But it is unknown if the man had something to do with Mary's murder or not. Mary's brother said the photo could have just been part of an art project, so the mystery man might just be a red herring. Police conducted more than 100 formal interviews and vetted more than 400 leads, but there were no arrests. And while I may not know who all of those interviewees were, I want to focus on four potential suspects. And reminder, I'm not accusing anyone. I'm just speculating for the sake of speculating. Of course. So suspect number one is Mary's unknown boyfriend. Unfortunately, I don't know his name, but according to author Robert Dudley, at the time of her death, Mary was dating a real estate agent in his 30s. The man also had a mustache, similar to the man in the witness sketch and drove a yellow or gold-colored car, which again, similar to the witness's description, according to this boyfriend's friends, shortly after Mary's murder, the man shaved his mustache and sold his car. I do not know if the police looked into him at all. I hope that they did. As statistically speaking, a spouse or partner are quite often linked to the crime. And if we're looking for a motive... Robert Dudley also claimed that Mary's boyfriend was married at the time of their relationship. Maybe Mary threatened to tell his wife, or maybe she was ending the relationship and the guy wasn't happy about it. Again, I just really hope he was deeply investigated by the police. Yeah. Suspect number two is Dennis Anderson, the witness who allegedly saw the killer dump Mary's body. Why would I add the witness to the potential suspect list? Well, there's this little thing called hiding in plain sight. (laughs) But also, Dennis had a lot of inconsistencies in his story. At one point, he said he first witnessed the killer's vehicle around 12 p.m. Then later, he said it was closer to 1 p.m. Maybe Dennis changed his story after he learned Mary's time of death. I don't know. Also, he said when he passed the car, the couple inside was fighting. And that later he saw a man dump a woman's body in the ditch. But later he changed his story to say he only saw the killer dumping the body and covering it with snow. But if Dennis saw someone thrown into a ditch, why didn't he immediately go check to see if that person was okay? Why did he go all the way home and then bring his neighbor back to the scene before contacting police. Why not contact the police or an ambulance when you got home? Because keep in mind, according to him, the car drove off before he left the area. He could have stopped, looked, and gone, oh my God, and then gone and called when he got home. But Dennis's house was a five-mile round trip from 408th Avenue, so he potentially had time to kill Mary, stage her body, drive home, clean up, then get his neighbor to come to the scene as an alibi. Was Dennis's home ever searched? Was his wife questioned to determine Dennis's state of mind when he got home? Originally, Dennis said that uh, the man dumped the body, got in the car, and drove off. But then later, he added, well, but then the killer also covered the body with snow. So it's just, did Dennis see the killer dump the body and run? Or did he see the killer dump the body, cover it with snow, and then run? It may seem like a insignificant detail, but it's just the kind of stuff that I find incredibly suspicious. Suspicious, like the fact that Dennis just happened to be on a road the same day Marv Gibson was on it, even though the road was described by locals as hardly traveled. Assuming that Dennis wasn't the killer... What are the odds of three separate men driving that same dead-end road within an hour of each other? Eight months after Mary Schleiss's murder, an anonymous note was sent to the crime lab that read, quote, did you ever think the man who found the murdered girl at Elk Lake also put her there? From the best I can tell, Dennis Anderson was never treated as a suspect.
2: Uh, Wowzer. Um, Yeah, again, not accusing, just speculating. No, no, but I had my own thoughts on that as well, which I will uh, save. But in this moment, let's take a quick break. Let's hit the can. Let's grab another drink. Let's come on back here where we're going to talk more about the Mary Schleiss and Ann Barber Dunlap cases on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails.
4: so don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
2: Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the Mary Schleiss and Ann Barber Dunlap cases. Before the break, we were talking about two of the four suspects. Who's suspect number three? Well, you see,
3: I purposely put suspects three and four in this next portion of the show because they're both serial killers. You saucy minx. (laughs) (laughs) Thank Thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Oh, God. The temperature, the booze is... Making me so hot, but then suddenly I'm so cold. Mm -hmm. And I've got heat, like, blowing on me, and so I'm, like, rolling up the pant legs, and then I also have a blanket, but I have to lose the blanket, but then I do, and then I'm like, oh, but my lap is cold. And it's just, what a nightmare of a human being I am. Not as much of a nightmare as a serial killer. Hello. There we go, professional. Suspect number three. Harvey... Kerrigan. Now for Lauren's psychologist hat, Harvey Lewis Kerrigan, Kerrigan, was born in May 1927 in North Dakota. His father left when Harvey was just four years old, and he suffered physical abuse at the hands of his mother after that. Mm. Harvey had a chronic bedwetting problem, so his mother sent him to live with an aunt and uncle. However, after the aunt gave birth to a baby, Harvey was sent back to live with his mother. The new living situation only lasted a few months before Harvey was sent to live with his grandmother, who eventually shipped Harvey off to live with another aunt. At the age of 11, Harvey was sent to a reform school where he was sexually abused by some of the female staff until he left at the age of 18. Harvey enlisted in the U.S. Army, and while stationed in Anchorage, Alaska, Harvey killed 58-year-old Laura Showalter during an attempted rape in July 1949. Six weeks later, Harvey attempted to assault another woman, and he was arrested. Harvey soon confessed to Laura's murder, and he was later convicted of first-degree murder and assault with intent to commit rape and given a mandatory death sentence. In 1951, a new trial was ordered on the grounds that Harvey's confession was improperly obtained. The interrogating officer told Harvey that if he confessed, he would not be executed, even though that was the mandatory sentence at the time. After a second trial, Harvey, who pleaded not guilty to Laura's murder this time, was sentenced to just 15 years for the second attempted assault, and transferred to Alcatraz in 1952. And for reasons I'll never fully understand, Harvey was paroled in 1960. Jesus. When released, Harvey moved to Minnesota to live with family, where he was arrested for burglary months later. He was then convicted of an attempted third-degree burglary and sent to prison for four years. Harvey was paroled in March 1964. He moved to Seattle, Washington. On November 22nd, 1964, exactly one year after the JFK assassination, and exactly 17 years before the birth of this glorious bitch, Harvey Carrington was arrested for second-degree burglary and eventually sentenced to 15 years. You love how I quietly called myself a glorious bitch in there? Of course. (laughs) I also don't know how quiet it was. It wasn't. Uh, So this time in prison... Harvey earned his GED and took a few college classes. He was paroled in 1968 for good behavior. And what I love is that good behavior got a serial offender released more than 11 years early. Ah, yeah. In 1969, Harvey got married and settled in the Seattle area. The couple soon divorced, and in April 1972, Harvey married a second time— It was said that the marriage started to deteriorate after Harvey paid more attention to his 14-year-old stepdaughter than he did to his own wife. Mm. The stepdaughter eventually ran away to get herself out of the situation. On October 15, 1972, 19-year-old Leslie Laura Brock was found dead from blunt force trauma to the head in Washington. A witness last saw Leslie alive in Harvey's truck. However, police found no evidence linking Harvey to the crime, so he was never arrested. Soon after, Harvey posted a Help Wanted ad at his gas station in Seattle. On May 1, 1973, 15-year-old Kathy Sue Miller responded to the ad, and Harvey allegedly sexually assaulted Kathy and beat her to death with a hammer. Her body was found months later by two boys hiking near Everett, Approximately 29 miles or 46 kilometers north of Seattle. Once again, with no evidence linking Harvey to the crime, he was not charged. Then on June 28th, 47 year old Mary Townsend was abducted from a bus stop. When Mary woke up, she was in Harvey's vehicle and he was demanding her to perform various sexual acts. Mary managed to free herself and jumped from the vehicle while it was moving. Days later, Harvey physically assaulted his wife who filed for divorce and Harvey moved to Minnesota. On September 9, 1973, Harvey picked up 13-year-old Jerry Billings while she was hitchhiking. Harvey sexually assaulted her and repeatedly hit her with a hammer before releasing her. Yeah. In May 1974, Harvey moved in with his new girlfriend, 29-year-old Eileen Hunley. In August, Eileen broke off the relationship, and then the next day went missing? Her body was found five weeks later. She had been raped and suffered several blows to the head. Around the time that Eileen's body was found, Harvey picked up Gwen Burton from a Sears parking lot, sexually assaulted, and then strangled her before dumping her body in a field. Gwen managed to survive, as did Jerry Billings, uh, from what I can tell. Four days after Gwen's attack, Harvey picked up teenagers Sally Versoy and Diane Flynn and sexually and physically assaulted them both before the girls escaped. Two days later, 18-year-old Catherine Schultz disappeared. Her body was found a day later in a cornfield. She had been beaten with a hammer. Harvey was arrested three days later and charged with attempted murder and aggravated sodomy. He pleaded insanity claiming that God had ordered him to, quote, kill whores and harlots. Oh, boy. hmm In 1975, Harvey was found guilty on both counts. Months later, he was also found guilty of indecent liberties, sodomy upon a child, and two counts of aggravated sodomy. He was sentenced to 60 years. Harvey was also indicted for the murders of Catherine Schultz and Eileen Hunley. Harvey pleaded guilty, to the second degree murder of Catherine and was given an additional 40-year sentence. He pleaded guilty to the first degree murder of Eileen and was given a life sentence. The piece of shit, who can somehow be known as, or came to be known as the Wanted Ad Killer, died in prison in March 2023 at the age of 95. So what does Harvey have to do with Mary Schleiss? Well, Harvey was living in Minnesota at the time of Mary's death, and he had a history of picking up hitchhikers and brutally attacking them before dumping their bodies. So it's possible. However, most of Harvey's victims were sexually assaulted, and Mary Schleiss was not. So it's possible Harvey was not involved. Uh, But I think Harvey is a genuine possibility. Or maybe the person involved in Mary's murder was Randall Woodfield. Another Serial killer? Again, some background to help with Lauren's diagnoses. Thank you. Randall Brent Woodfield was born December 26, 1950 in Otter Rock, Oregon. He had two older sisters. Their father was a manager at Pacific Northwest Bell, and their mother was a homemaker. From the outside, the Woodfield family seemed to be just an ordinary, happy family who were well known and well respected in their community. However, as we have learned doing this show, looks can be deceiving. Randall's father pushed him into sports. Seemingly a natural athlete, Randall played basketball, football, and ran track at Newport High School. When he was 13, Randall was caught peeping in windows. Then he was caught exposing himself to women while standing on the Yaquina Bay Bridge. Because of his amazing athletic ability, his high school football coaches had that incident just swept under the rug. But Randall's parents forced him to attend therapy, which I applaud them for. Yeah. However, the therapist said Randall was just having an adolescent lapse in impulse control, Mm. so the matter was dropped. It was even expunged from his record when Randall turned 18. He graduated from high school in 1969 and attended Treasure Valley Community College in Ontario, Oregon, before transferring in 1970 to Portland State University, where he played for the Portland State Vikings as a wide receiver. During his time on the team, Randall was arrested for various petty crimes, such as vandalizing an ex-girlfriend's apartment in 1970, and two charges of indecent exposure in 1972 and 1973. A jury found him not guilty of the vandalizing due to a lack of evidence, but he was convicted on both counts of indecent exposure. Randall was described by teammates as quiet, unassuming, and didn't quite fit in. The head coach, though, said Randall was, quote, "...the nicest, most gentlemanly kid I ever knew." During his time at Portland State, Randall got heavily involved in the Campus Crusade for Christ, which is, quote, "...a community of movements helping people understand and experience a relationship with Jesus." Randall dropped out of college just three semesters shy of graduating with a bachelor's degree in physical education. He was selected by the Green Bay Packers in the 17th round of the 1974 NFL draft. Technically, he was selected 428th overall. The Packers offered Randall a one-year contract for $16,000, which is equivalent to nearly $98,000 in 2023. He was also offered bonuses, such as an additional $2,000 if he caught 25 passes during the season, or $3,000 if he caught 30. Randall was excited, as this kind of money meant he could finally quit his job at Burger Chef. He signed the contract in February 1974, before immediately heading back to Portland. In June, the Packers sent Randall a first-class plane ticket, along with instructions for an airport limo pickup, that would take him to the team's training camp in DePere, Wisconsin. Randall refused and instead chose to make the drive from Oregon. And I hate flying as much as the next person, but we're talking 2,011 miles or 3,236 kilometers, which feels extreme to drive that. Uh, The team bio described Randall as six feet tall, 170 pounds, and quote, Cuts on a dime, has good hands, and catches well in crowd. Whereas one of his former teammates described Randall as, quote, a little strange, maybe stranger than we thought. You just had a bad feeling about the guy, like there was something underneath the mask. Randall lasted through camp and even through a series of cuts before and after a scrimmage with the Chicago Bears, but on August 19th, 1974, Randall was officially cut from the team. Randall blamed the fact that the Packers were planning to run the ball more in the season, but the truth was the team was concerned about several indecent exposure convictions, so Randall was cut before ever playing a game. After being cut from the Packers, Randall played a season with the semi-professional team, the Manitowoc uh, Chiefs while working as a press break operator at Oshkosh Truck. During the 1974 Central States Football League Championship game, Randall caught two passes for 42 yards. Unfortunately, the Chiefs lost 14 to nothing to the Madison Mustangs. After the game, Randall was dropped from the team. No reason was mentioned publicly, but it is believed to have been due to Randall's off field activities. In 1974, and again in 1975, Randall Randall was arrested for two counts of indecent exposure. A detective later discovered at least 10 cases of indecent exposure involving Randall across the state of Wisconsin. Randall was said to be devastated by being cut from the team, so he chose to head back to Oregon. In Portland, Randall floated around aimlessly going through various odd jobs, constantly moving and going through many short-lived relationships. Then in early 1975, police in Portland noticed a string of attacks on women carried out by a man with a knife who is often described as handsome and athletically built. After demanding that the women perform oral sex on him, the attacker would then take the woman's wallet or purse and run. On March 5th, police set up a sting operation involving several undercover female officers. When one particular officer walked through a park, the armed attacker jumped out of a bush and demanded money. The man was soon arrested and identified as Randall Woodfield. He was arrested for robbery, and during his interview, Randall said he had some impulse control issues and sexual problems which he believed were both caused by the steroids he took while he was playing football. Interesting. Yeah, I do find, well, the thing I find interesting is just always going to blame someone else. Oh, yeah. I do find it interesting that he brought up the impulse control that he was, as though the therapist in his youth gave him the excuse he needed to continue his behavior, because it's not his fault. Yeah. He has a problem with impulse control. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So Randall was sent to prison for a few years, but was released just in time for his 10-year high school reunion in 1979, which he did attend and spent the night bragging about his time with the Packers. I assume he didn't mention his various crimes or his real reason for being cut from the team, but his brief time with the Packers meant a lot to Randall. So much so that he kept a carbon copy of the first class plane tickets the team sent him in June 1974 in his wallet. Carried them around all the time.
0: Oh, my. In late 1979,
3: Randall sent a mostly nude photo of himself to Playgirl magazine and received a response that said, quote, congratulations, you've been selected for possible publication in Playgirl's Guy Next Door feature. The photo I thankfully did not see, but apparently it was he was not wearing very much, but wearing a lot of oil (laughs) from my understanding. okay, yep. Uh, Well, apparently the uh, call for the photo shoot never came. Which caused a lot of anger for Randall. On October 11th, 1980, 29-year-old Sherry Lynn Ayers was found raped, stabbed, and bludgeoned to death in her apartment in Portland. According to the autopsy report, Sherry died from blunt force trauma and knife wounds to her neck. It turns out that Sherry and Randall had known each other since the second grade and they even saw each other again at the high school reunion not long before. Turns out that they also had been corresponding while Randall was in prison, and investigators discovered letters to Sherry from Randall in her apartment after her murder. Because of this connection, Randall was an immediate suspect. When he was questioned, his answers were deceptive and evasive, and he refused a polygraph. But when Randall was tested he was not a match to the DNA found at the crime scene. And while that may make you think Randall was innocent of Sherry's murder, remember that DNA testing in 1980 wasn't exactly reliable. Yeah. Seven weeks later, 22-year-old Darcy Renee Fix and 24-year-old Douglas Keith Altig were shot in the shot to death in the back of their heads with a 32 revolver in Darcy's home in Portland. Turns out that Darcy used to date one of Randall's former teammates from the Portland State track team. Randall was questioned again, but with no evidence linking him to the crime, Randall was released without charge. On December 9th, a man wearing a fake beard robbed a gas station in Vancouver, Washington. Four nights later, in Eugene, Oregon, the man in the fake beard robbed an ice cream parlor. Although this time, he wore a Band-Aid or piece of athletic tape across the bridge of his nose. The next day, he robbed a drive-in restaurant in Albany, Oregon, before escalating to assaulting a waitress inside a restroom at a restaurant in Seattle a week later. Then on January 18, 1981, at the end of her shift at a Trans-America office building in Kaiser, Oregon, 20-year-old Sherry Lynn Hull was preparing to leave the building when she was accosted by a man who was later described as handsome, six feet tall, with curly brown hair and brown eyes. The man, who was wearing a strip of athletic tape across his nose, threatened Sherry with a gun. They ran into 20-year-old Lisa Garcia. The man forced both women in the back room where he sexually assaulted them and shot them in the back of the head. Sherry died from her injuries while Lisa managed to survive by pretending to be dead until the attacker left. Lisa then called the police who noticed a man fitting the exact description standing at an intersection a mile from the scene. But instead of questioning that man, the officers decided it was impossible for someone to run that fast to get from that location to where they were. So they ignored the man and headed to the crime scene. Impossible for a regular person, but what about a well-trained athlete? Yeah, I was just going to say. <laughs> if only the police knew about an athlete who was known for sexual crimes. But I digress. After this incident, police realized they had a serial criminal on their hands, one they referred to as the I-5 Bandit or the I-5 Killer, as all crimes occurred within two miles or 3.2 kilometers of an I-5 exit. And to be clear, when I say the I-5 Killer, I do not mean the I-5 Strangler, because yes, not one but two men attacked people along Interstate 5, which runs nearly 1,381 miles or 2,223 kilometers from the Mexican border to British Columbia, Canada. Although these two monsters only terrorized like a 755-mile stretch between San Francisco, California and Bellevue, Washington. The I-5 Strangler was Roger Reese Kibbe, Born May 21st, 1939 in San Diego, California, he grew up with a physically abusive mother and bullies who would tease him for his stutter. He was often described as a loner. And in 1954, when he was just 15 years old, Roger was charged with petty theft and prowling after it was discovered he stole women's clothing from clotheslines in his neighborhood and cut them in unusual ways and then buried them.
2: oh boy
3: that it's yeah Uh, at some point Rogers started a career selling his own homemade furniture and he married a woman named Harriet then on September 10th 1977 21 year old Lou Ellen Burley left her home in Walnut Creek California heading for a job interview she never returned home then 17 year old Darcy Renee Frackenpool went missing in August 1987. Her body was found strangled in South Lake Tahoe a month later. Roger was arrested after he attempted to abduct a sex worker in downtown San Francisco. When police searched his vehicle, they found evidence linking Roger to Darcy's murder, and in 1991, he was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to 25 years to life. It was believed Roger murdered at least seven women, over the span of 10 years. Police believe Roger kidnapped his victims, covered their mouths with duct tape, and tied them up with a parachute rigging cord. The victims were then sexually assaulted and strangled to death. Sometimes Roger would use a garrote made of parachute cord, which he would then go and use for skydiving. He would also cut off most of the victim's hair. In 2003, Roger took detectives and prosecutors to a dry creek to show them where he buried the body of his first victim, Llewellyn Burley, in 1977. Nothing was found, so the area was searched again in 2007 and in 2009, and while Llewellyn's body wasn't found, a grand jury sentenced Roger to six additional life sentences after he pleaded guilty to Llewellyn's murder and Five other murders from 1986. The night, uh, Llewellyn's murder, uh, Roger lured her with a fake job posting at a business trade school. To give you a rundown uh, on the 1986 killing spree that he had on April 20th, uh, 21 year old Laura Rena Hedick was last seen getting into a car with a Caucasian middle-aged man. Her body was found five months later near Sacramento. On July 3rd, 29-year-old Barbara Ann Scott was found strangled on a golf course in Antioch, California. Twelve days later, 19-year-old Stephanie Brown was found sexually assaulted and strangled to death in a drainage ditch in San Joaquin County. An unusual pair of scissors were discovered near her body. Turns out, those scissors used to belong to Roger's mother. He would often use them to cut strange shapes out of the clothing of his victims. On August 17th, 26-year-old Charmaine Sabra was last seen getting into a stranger's car after her car broke down on the I-5. Charmaine's body was found in November in Ioni. She had been strangled. By this point, the police realized they had a serial killer on their hands. Most of the victims were picked up or discarded near the I-5, so the unknown killer was given the name the I-5 Strangler. Multiple people described the woman being, seen, being last seen with an older man with a large nose. In the fall, Roger was stopped for a routine traffic violation where the officers noted how much Roger looked like a composite sketch. That had been made of the suspected I-5 Strangler. His car was photographed. And he was released without charge. It's just the fact that they looked at him and went. Ha. Crazy. You look like a guy we're looking for. Have a good day sir. And then that's it. Yeah. I mean I know that legally. Maybe they couldn't do anything but. Maybe they could have done something. Yeah. But. On December 21st. 25-year-old Catherine Kelly Quinones was found strangled near the Pope Creek Bridge at Lake Berryessa. In 2011, a detective returned to the dry creek and discovered a bone, which was found to be a DNA match to Lou Ellen Burley 34 years after her death. And while Roger never confessed to that crime, he was later found responsible for the June 1987 murder of 25-year-old Karen Louise Finch, whose body was found in a ditch. She had been sexually assaulted, and her throat had been cut. While serving time in Mule Creek Prison, 81-year-old Roger was murdered by his cellmate in February 2021. 40-year-old Jason Boudreau was charged with first-degree murder with special circumstances, meaning the prosecutors would not seek the death penalty. Roger's cause of death was manual strangulation. Jason, who was already serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole, later claimed that he murdered Roger to avenge Roger's victims. And if Roger's story isn't crazy enough, it turns out that Roger's brother was a homicide detective? No one has ever implied that his brother helped him get away with crimes, but allegedly Roger's brother did give Roger advice on what to do when you're being investigated. Wow. Yeah. Which should have been a red flag to the brother when <laughs> your brother starts asking you questions like that, you know. Yeah. As a detective. <laughs> But But back to the I-5 killer, a.k.a. Randall Woodfield. Throughout the month of January 1981, Randall committed six robberies and six sexual assaults, two of which included girls under the age of 10. On February 3rd, 1981, just two weeks after Sherry Hall's murder, the I-5 killer struck again this time in the Mountain Gate, California home of 37-year-old Donna Lee Eckerd. Both Donna and her 14-year-old daughter, Janelle Charlotte Jarvis, were found dead, both shot multiple times in the head. Janelle had also been sexually assaulted. Earlier that same day, an 18-year-old waitress was kidnapped and sexually assaulted after a robbery in Redding, 15 miles or 24 kilometers south of Mountain Gate. The next day, another young waitress was abducted and assaulted 88 miles or 142 kilometers north in Eureka, California, and that night a motel was robbed 38 miles away in Ashland, Oregon. On February 9th, he held up a fabric store in Corvallis, Oregon, where he molested the female clerk and a customer while he was there. Three days later, he committed robberies throughout Washington including Vancouver, Olympia, and Bellevue. Three of those robberies involved sexual assaults. On February 14th, 18-year-old Julianne Wrights was fatally shot in her home in Beaverton, Oregon. And it turns out that Julie knew Randall Woodfield when he worked as a bouncer at a place called The Faucet. He also committed two robberies in Eugene on February 18th and 21st. And by February 28th, the I-5 killer investigation finally started to focus on Randall when investigators noticed Randall made phone calls using calling cards at payphones near the crime scenes around the time of every crime. Now remember, the attack on January 18th, where Sherry Hull and Lisa Garcia were assaulted and shot uh, while they were cleaning a building and Lisa managed to survive – Well, Lisa managed to pick Randall Woodfield out of a photo lineup, and he was arrested on March 5th. Police searched Randall's home and found the tape that matched the tape found on his victims, as well as a spent 32 caliber casing in his racquetball bag. The casing matched uh, the bullets found in the victims. Four days later, Randall was charged with Sherry's murder, Lisa's attempted murder, and two counts of sodomy. He pleaded not guilty. By March 16th, multiple counts of murder, rape, attempted kidnapping, armed robbery, sodomy, and possession of a firearm by an ex-convict were added to Randall's rap sheet from the jurisdictions throughout Washington and Oregon. Randall's trial started in June. Fun fact, this trial was the first murder trial for the Marion County District Attorney, Chris Van Dyke, who is the son of legendary actor and gentleman Mr. Dick Van Dyke. How about that? It's fun. Uh, Chris described Randall Woodfield as, quote, an arrogant, cold, unemotional individual, probably the coldest, most detached defendant that he's ever seen. Randall's own defense was that, oh, this is all just a case of mistaken identity. Which didn't help the the fact there was overwhelming evidence and a witness account uh, that the prosecution had on their side. Randall took the stand where he admitted to owning a thirty-two caliber pistol, but said on the stand that when he learned that owning that gun was a violation of his parole, well, he took that gun and threw it in the river. So I guess thanks for admitting in court that you did have a weapon similar to the murder weapon and that you had it even though it was illegal. So I guess thanks for that, sir. But I don't know how smart Randall really was. After all, during the attacks, Randall would often try and disguise his identity by wearing like a fake beard or putting athletic tape or a Band-Aid over the bridge of his nose. He seemed to believe that tape would make him unrecognizable in a lineup. (laughs) Which makes me think maybe Randall doesn't understand how eyes work. (laughs) You know, maybe I'm wrong. After deliberating for three and a half hours, on June 26, 1981, the jury convicted Randall on all accounts. He was sentenced to life in prison plus 90 years. In October, a second trial was held in Benton County, Oregon, for sodomy and weapons charges regarding Randall's attacks on two waitresses. The judge denied counsel's request for a change of venue, as well as a request to hypnotize a prosecution witness to determine whether she'd been influenced by the media coverage. Which is the first time I've ever heard of a lawyer requesting that a witness be hypnotized. (laughs) Yeah, Randall was found guilty, and 35 years were added to his sentence. In October 1983, while serving time at the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem, Randall was injured by a fellow inmate. Unfortunately, he made a full recovery. Then in April 1987, Randall filed a $12 million libel suit against author Anne Rule, who had written a book about the I-5 killer. The suit was dismissed in January the next year. By 1990, Randall Woodfield was suspected in as many as 25 to 44 unsolved homicides and an estimated 60 unsolved sexual assaults. However, various district attorneys made the decision to not pursue charges against Randall, believing it would be too costly financially and in man hours for them, not to mention the toll that the trials would take on the victims and their families. And since they were confident Randall would remain behind bars for the rest of their life, they decided just to let it go. In 2012, advancements in DNA technology officially linked the deaths of Darcy Fix, Fick, Douglas Altig, Donna Eckard, Janelle Jarvis, and Julie Wrights to Randall Woodfield. And despite the DNA evidence, Randall has never confessed to any of his crimes. However, no authorities have chosen to take the cases to trial. All seem just confident with the idea that Randall will likely die in prison. And if he tries to appeal, investigators have said they will fight any appeal hearing that he may get. The thing about Randall is many of his crimes were committed as a response to rejection. On February 3rd, 1981, Randall called one of his sisters to see if she wanted to get together for coffee. The sister admitted her husband didn't want her around Randall at all, so Randall responded by going to the home of Donna Eckard and her daughter Janelle Jarvis and killing them both. Then on Valentine's Day, Randall decided to throw a party for himself at the Marriott Hotel in downtown Portland, and when no one showed up, Randall went to the home of Julie Wrights where he raped and murdered her. And the phone calls that Randall would make around the time of the crimes, turns out Randall had a lot of women he spoke to, a lot that would be considered maybe some sort of girlfriend, almost. Uh, And if he called someone and they turned him down, he would go out and just attack the nearest woman he could find. Which is why they realized, oh, he's using his card in that area because he just goes immediately to the next woman. Which is horrifying uh, to think that he punished certain women for the slights he believed other women had done to him. And if that isn't maddening enough, remember that Randall was sent to prison in 1975 after that sting operation? He was sentenced to 10 years, but released after just four with a positive report from the prison psychologist? He was released in 1979, and I will remind you that his first murder occurred in October 1980. So if Randall had remained in prison for the full 10 years, none of those crimes would have happened. Of course, he likely would have committed other crimes after the 10 years. It's just a hard pill to swallow when you realize so many lives could have been saved if he wasn't given an early release. Yep. I'd also love to see the credentials of that prison psychologist that gave him a positive score. And said he should be released. But Randall seems to be faring well in his current incarceration. Since he entered prison in 1981, Randall has been married three times and divorced twice. Oh, wow. I don't know if he knew any of these women before he went to prison or not, uh, I know the first marriage dissolved after just six months, and the second took place in April 2001. After the brief ceremony in the warden's office, Randall and Jennifer Lynn Correa were allowed a brief honeymoon in the conjugal trailer. And maybe it's just me, but I think if someone goes to prison for murder, or a sex crime, or especially both, they should not be allowed any conjugal privileges, Ever. But maybe that's just me. At some point, Randall and Jennifer divorced, and Randall got married for a third time, although I do not know who that bride was. In 2006, Randall signed up for a MySpace account. He wrote in his profile, and I quote, I spend the remainder of my days in prison because I have committed a murder, along with many other crimes. I once tried out for the Green Bay Packers. (sighs) The only reason I didn't make it is because the skills I had to offer, they didn't need at the time. I find it fascinating that he finally admits in a MySpace bio to being guilty of a crime, but yet still refuses to admit that the Packers dropped (laughs) him because of other crimes that he committed. Yep. And is still hard bragging about being picked up by the, the great Green Bay Packers. Fuck off, Randall. I have no time for your bullshit. <laughs> but she's on it today. I love it. Uh, one final thing I want to mention about Randall Woodfield, uh, because it is random. In February 2021, Stephanie Holman from The Real Housewives of Atlanta posted a Valentine tweet about her husband, Travis. The tweet read, quote, Happy Valentine's Day, Travis. I love doing life with you. You are such an amazing husband or such a wonderful husband and father. You are the only person I have ever met who was babysat by a serial killer and made it out alive. True story. He was a he was babysat by the I-5 killer. Love you so much today and every day. Very clearly a grasp for attention Because I guess it worked because I had not heard of her or her husband prior to researching this episode. Uh, Because, no, I do not watch any Real Housewives. I know they are popular. They're just not my jam. If you love them, I love that for you. (laughs) It's just not everything's for everyone. Of course. But I will also say, what a wild thing to say, um, especially when it came to a man whose crimes were usually against women. And the only man that he killed was because the man happened to be there. And he wasn't known for killing children when he was a child because he didn't start killing until later in life. So I don't think your husband was ever in harm's way. No. I don't think he was, you know. Anyhow, again grasps for attention and you got it. You got it. I also love that now I'm like, was she Real Housewives of Atlanta? I might've got that wrong. I could I don't know. <laughs> Someone will tell me if I'm wrong. Yep. Either way, one of those Real Housewives. But I have spent a lot of time talking about Randall Woodfield. So what does Randall Woodfield have to do with Mary Schleiss? Well, the key thing to remember here is that Mary was killed February 15th, 1974, and a witness saw a man in an orange or gold-colored compact car dumping Mary's body in a ditch. In February 1974, Randall went to Wisconsin to sign his contract with the Green Bay Packers. Officials from the team have said Randall arrived a day or two late. I don't know when Randall was supposed to arrive or when he officially did, but he signed that contract with them on February 20th, just five days after Mary's death. And while I can't confirm what vehicle Randall was driving at the time, he did own a 1974 champagne edition Volkswagen Beetle convertible, which was gold. So is it possible the car seen by the witness was Randall's car? Is it possible that Randall was late in signing the contract because he took a slight detour and murdered Mary Schleiss? I think it's more than possible. And while most of Randall's crimes seemed sexually motivated, I think it's possible he planned to assault Mary, but then stopped when he saw Dennis Anderson on the deserted road. Then Randall panicked, killed Mary, and dumped her body. I think that's more than possible. And Mary matched the profile of Randall's other victims. They were all young, petite, Caucasian females. And Randall matched the description of the killer given to police by Dennis Anderson, And I know Randall didn't stick around the area long. He was back in Portland by February 22nd. And I know that because he was arrested in Portland that very night for exposing himself to women. So while there is no evidence that definitively links Randall to the crime, I think he is definitely a likely suspect. In 2009, Mary Schleiss's body was exhumed for DNA testing. It wasn't until 2018 That investigators announced they retrieved DNA profiles from two unknown men. The only thing the police would say about the samples was that they did not rule out Randall Woodfield as a suspect. So Randall is still a potential suspect in Mary's case, which is of course considered to be open. As of April, 2023, Randall Woodfield has not been interviewed regarding Mary's case, which remains unsolved. Horrified by just how many serial killers there are, I'm Christy Oxborough.
2: Yeah, there was like a real trend of it also during a period of time. Yeah. 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 Well, listen, let's take a quick break, cleanse the palate, have another drink, hit the can, and we're going to be right back to wrap up the Mary Schleiss and Ann Barber Dunlap episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. All right. So much to get into. Um, All right. This Anne Barber Dunlap yeah. case. It's just, I know this is going to sound absolutely bad shit. Sure. But the whole time, you did mention it at one point, and I was glad you did because I was like, are her parents in on it with him? Like, it just feels, like, so performative to be so into him. And that yeah. would be very twisted, and I'm not suggesting that they are. I just put it out there because, I don't know, there's just something that doesn't sit right about the whole thing with me. Um, When you said Brad had no alibi, he was running errands, I wrote, like leaving your wife's car in a parking lot with her in it? <laughs> yep. Yeah. I mean, I will
3: also say my first thought was. Was she the only child and her parents were like, well, we got to cling to Brad because he's all we've got left. No, they did have at least one other
2: child. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. I mean, again, he has he has a motive. He doesn't have an alibi. We also don't know if that other house site had ever been properly checked. Correct. So I don't know. I mean, again, it's like the fact also that the insurance company outright said Brad killed her and so that that's why they weren't paying up. I'm like, that's a bold move on an insurance company. Like, you can't say that. That's crazy. It's there was wild. They got away with that. It's wild. Like it's in court. it's,
3: It's a court document. Yeah. That they were like, we're not paying it because you're a murderer.
2: (laughs) I mean, bold. (laughs) Very bold. Um, Yeah, I enjoyed the part of of the profile, the FBI profile, which was that the killer was intelligent but didn't have any experience killing, which I'm not saying is necessarily an incorrect profile. But what I would say to that is, well, whoever did it, did it well because they didn't get caught. So they may be inexperienced, but I think that's maybe that's what they meant by the intelligence comment. Because again, I was just like, it just feels odd to, if that is the case and you're inexperienced to pull it off so well. But again, it also feels like he had, it just, I mean, look, we're speculating, we're alleging, but he has the motive to kill for that insurance money the nine one one call we know was odd no alibi the alibi he tried to give didn't was not corroborated like i don't know there's just a lot there i just don't know who else it would be it could be a random killing but again if we knew that she was going to nordstrom and she was found at kmart i don't know to me if it was random I, again, my,
3: I come back to why was her blood at the house she was staying at? Yeah. And why was her blood found on a fireplace log? Yeah. Like, that doesn't make sense to me.
2: I'd also like to know how much blood was on the log. Same. Right? Because it's like, if it's just a drop, well, in a court of law, that's, there's reasonable doubt. But if it was covered in it. Right? Oh, agreed. Also, by the way, of all the things to leave laying around, a fireplace log is so easily destroyed. Put it in the fireplace. Have a fire. It's half the name.
3: <laughs> Put it in the fire. Not that we're suggesting try and get away with the crime more, but it just it's wild. Why would you have even left it there?
2: Yeah. No, you raise a good point. And you know, the other thing, only the thing I wanted to say was there also felt like there was maybe something symbolic. Go with me on this. Sure. That he said she was going to Nordstrom, which is not a super expensive store. There are more crazy expensive, but it's high end. It's a high end store. And she was found at a Kmart. That bumped me. I was like, is it, is that showing some sort of he had a feeling about how she was living. She was living beyond her means and he was taking her down a notch. Like, you think you're Nordstrom, but you're actually Kmart. Like, I don't know. I know oh. that I'm really going out there on the psychologist heading, but it just also felt like the only other thing of note that was like such a specific, sure. it would seem odd that maybe there wasn't additional meaning behind it. Oh, you say you were
3: maybe going out on a limb. I said out loud, to myself during this because you know she likes to write a story of course they were building a house because the plan was they were going to have children what if she was she had like been doing so well at work what if she said to him "I'd, i'd like to put a pause on kids for now and he was like well we're not getting any younger and they got into an argument over it and he hit her in the head and then was like oh my god what do i do well i have to make this look random so it could it may have been a didn't intentionally do it for the insurance money but it also could have been she mentioned it and then he was like well then we're done here yeah and it's like what else am i going to do i'm going to increase our yeah. life insurance to a million dollars and somehow her parents said that absolutely makes sense yeah i just have so many questions do they interact with his children like why do you still go visit him like 30 years later
2: it's either that they are so deep into that they were all deeply hurt like earnestly they believe that so they think it's important to keep him in their life or it's something untoward. Like there's no middle ground. That's not typical of how people treat those kinds of relationships.
3: It's weird. Yeah. It's weird. Like I spent a chunk of time with my husband trying to explain it with and just be like, okay, so if 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 you were murdered and we did not have children, I, I'm not, I'm not gonna continue a relationship with people that you are related to like you know what i mean and he's like okay he's like what if you died so he's like so let me get this straight if you died and then your parents are visiting me i'm like correct but i'm like but in this world we don't have kids and he's like why would they do that i'm like i know that's all i need
2: Well, I could see it for the first little while. I could see it for the first few years, you know, whatever. But then as the the other person gets married and have kids, like, I just feel like it would probably be a lot of people would just slowly fade. Right. I desperately want to know how the new wife feels about them. Well, that's the thing. When you said that it was like they still go or they still see each other every year, at least once every year, it's like,
3: it's interesting is it like yellow jackets? <laughs> I got to catch up on that. Oh yeah, I'm I'm specifically speaking season 1 cuz I'm yeah. behind on season 2 already, but just that moment of like still seeing your essentially your ex's family or their parents
2: years later. Yeah. I have a lot of questions about it. Yeah. All right, Mary Schleiss. Um Lots going on here. Yeah, the first thing I wrote about Dennis was, why did you not call the police? Think about this for a second. Oh, I wanted to take my dog for a drive in the middle of nowhere. Already weird. I saw people dump a body, so I went home to drop off my dog, tell my wife, get my neighbor, and go back. Here's a few things. One... Now, I know that this was in the 70s, so we're not dealing with cell phones and whatnots, but you absolutely could go to a payphone, a business. The first call is the police. 100%. My next point is this. Imagine you're his wife, and he comes home and says, Honey, you're not going to believe this. I just watched a woman's body get dumped in the middle of nowhere. So I'm gonna get the neighbor and we're gonna go back and poke it. Like what? Even didn't say have, poke it, but it's have just like it. the wife call the police while you're gone. Have the wife. But again, I just feel like any wife would be like, what? No. What are you thinking? We're calling the police. Whatever. It's just odd to me. It just felt like I don't know. It there's just something that's so off about that. What do you think you can bring to this situation other than contaminating a crime scene. Correct. And then the fact that, you know, this other guy found her in the in the meantime. But then also, it's like, why did Dennis have so much of a feeling of possession over that body? Like, why did he feel like it was like, no, you move on, we've come back for the body. Like, that's weird from yep. a psychologist's perspective. Um, the fact that he did a hypnotherapy to try and help with the case... I don't know. It's just, I don't know. The inconsistencies in his story, the fact that, you know, it all just feels suspicious. I don't know. That one, he doesn't sit right with me at all.
3: Oh, I just hate the idea that he saw. I get, look, I get being freaked out because you don't know what you saw. I get being like, well, I'm not going to call the cops, because what if it was nothing? I don't get why he didn't at least look before he left the area. And I certainly don't get why he was like, I'm going to get somebody to come with me, but we're going to wait till we get there, and then we're going to go back to a house and call. Like, you're just wasting so much time.
2: I think it's safe to say, if anyone has an experience where they think that they viewed a body getting dumped. I think the police, that they're okay to field that call. And even if it wasn't necessarily what you thought it was, it's the only way to not make people think that you're involved. If you were genuinely not involved, the first thing you do is call the police, period. Yep. If for no other reason than to exonerate yourself. But going home... Dropping off the dog, telling his wife, getting his buddy to go on what feels like some sort of stand-by-me adventure to the bo- to see a dead body is so yep. twisted and odd and ultimately not helpful yep. to Mary.
3: He also, uh, one of his comments was the reason he brought the neighbor is because
2: he thought someone had been hurt. You call the police. You call the police. You're not the police. You're not the paramedics. You call the police. You've wasted time. All right. This unknown boyfriend is interesting. The fact that there was someone that fit the description, had the similar car. Yep. Um, The fact that he shaved the mustache, sold the car after Mary's death. The fact that he may have been married to someone else. That's all interesting. But again, to your point, it's like, well, I hope he was properly interviewed. Yeah. Okay, Harvey Um, This story is fascinating from a psychology perspective. The fact that he was the chronic bedwetter, the fact that he was shipped around, which, of course, is something that we definitely saw in the... Uh, Pauline and Juliet episode. Yeah. His mother was abusive, put in that boarding school where he was very tragically sexually assaulted, where he then had to stay until he was 18. He had nowhere else to go. Then he joins the army. I mean, this whole story is very tragic. And that's not me defending any of his actions. But again, really setting the stage here. Um, This is another one of those cases where he is charged with killing someone ends up getting out yep getting arrested again getting out early again and like we've said so many times on this show if you commit a a, a brutal murder and you are absolutely the person who did it life in prison yep this isn't manslaughter nope this isn't um you know self-defense this isn't it, it, it's it's just a, a a cold blood and then we know because then he went on to to kill other people yep it's just really it really starts to get overwhelming. <laughs> When we hear it over and over again, that it's like, well, if he had just even not done the full life in prison, which, by the way, I think is a fair charge, but even if he had done 25 years, 30 years. Yep. And I hear your point and you're you're not wrong that it's like, but he was going to get out eventually and he was going to kill somebody. But it's like, yeah, but we know for a fact that these lives could have been saved. Yep. And there's always the chance that if the person spends that much time, then the hope would be that they get rehabilitated. Now, is it possible to rehabilitate a psychopath? The jury's very out on that. A lot of people say no. But the point is, is that, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. So. Now, I know that in this, too, there was there was the concern because he did sexually assault his victims traditionally. Right. And Mary wasn't. But I just want to go on record as saying I don't think that that's proof that it wasn't him. Because as we know, he did change his MO a few times. um, And lots of killers do change their MO. There could have been a reason in the moment. Like you said before, like, you know, about the other gentleman. But, you know, there could have been a reason in the moment. Like there was a panic that was like, oh, I'm just going to do this and move on. Or I do think that sometimes they do change what they're doing. I mean, Richard Ramirez is a great example of that. Um, You can go back and listen to the Elisa Lam episode if you'd like to hear more about Richard Ramirez that we did. Um, But he's a great example where his M.O. was all over the map. He was like a crime of um, convenience guy. It was kind of, you know, and then the manner in which he killed people changed. the the, he let one of his victims go like it it doesn't to me it's not cut and dry black and white sure um we also don't know how she was we also don't know whether it was you know was she fighting him too hard was you know there's other factors too that could make a serial killer change in the moment you know yeah um okay randall woodfield I think what's fascinating, what chilled me was the moment that you said he got into like that religious club. Yes. Because it feels like twofold to me. It feels like he knows that there's things that he's thinking and feeling that aren't right. And he's trying to like do right by God on one hand. And then on the other hand, it's the Ted Bundy volunteering at the suicide hotline. It's the Gacy being you know a local politician like it's also a a real trait um, to hide in plain sight and the other thing is is that I, I do feel like Randall has some kind of personality disorder just again like the fact that he also couldn't let it go about getting onto the Packers yeah he was like delusional but he was also just like braggadocious and the fact that he sent that naked photo to Playgirl, that does fit into that profile to me of someone who's like really, it, it feels almost like a narcissistic personality disorder to me. Um, I also am curious, do you think that when men send in photos to Playgirl or sent them in at this time, do you sure. think they just sent that letter to everyone? To make them feel good? Oh, more than possible. Because I could see a magazine with women being like, thank you, no thank you. But I could see wanting to protect the like ego of men. Sure. But it's like, let's send them all a letter that says we're considering them. It's non committal, but it doesn't, it's not a hard no. It lets them down lightly. Sure. Right. I mean, (laughs)
3: Any of our listeners sent in a letter and a photo to to Playgirl in the in the 70s or 80s?
2: Let us know. Let us know if you got a response.
3: <laughs> we don't need the photo. We don't want the photos. We don't need the story. Nope. Just uh Did you get
2: that letter? Did you get a letter? That's all we want to know. Great question. Yep. Um Okay, this I-5 strangler, Roger Kibby. I don't think I've heard anything as chilling in an episode as stealing women's underwear, cutting them into pieces and burying them. Yeah. Oh, we're getting... These these serial killers are getting darker by the minute. Um, the fact that his mother's scissors were found with one of the victims? Chilling. Mm-hmm. Chilling. There's obviously... A lot happening um, in that home as a child. Not a defense, just a fact. Um, wild, too, that his cellmate killed him. That is really something. Also, that there's a Dick Van Dyke connection in here. Who knew? I like his it. Son. Yeah. The other detail that I have to hit on. that also fits into like this profile I'm trying to build on Randall is the fact that he would put the bandaid or athletic tape over the bridge of his nose as though that made him unrecognizable. That's delusional.
3: Yeah. I mean, for me, part of it is, did he do it? Because that was like a thing he did during football and that like amped him up. Maybe. Like, it's just the idea that it's like, if I put this over my nose,
2: they'll never know who I am. It's like, stop it. Well, but the other thing with that too is like, yeah, but I I think that a man with a piece of black tape on his nose is actually probably going to get a lot more attention out in public. Like, you're kind of drawing more attention to yourself, which then kind of feeds into the narcissist's Belief that they're smarter than everybody and they can get away with anything. Because that's irrational. Oh, yeah. You know? 100%. Um, now, the last thing I wanted to touch on very quickly, and I think you're really going to love this. I can't wait. You were talking about his conjugal visits. Ugh. And then I thought, do female inmates get conjugal visits? what's a conjugal visit look like nowadays? Oh, So so I did a quick Google.
3: Oh, God.
2: And I guess conjugal visits in some states, they're only available in four states. This article. No kidding. Yeah, this article, I'm not sure when this was written. I will try and see. Um, And I have not cross-referenced. Obviously, I did a quick Google in the break, so bear with me here. But um, it was, you know, They also have phased out, apparently, the term conjugal visits, and now they use terms like family reunion program or extended family visits. Oftentimes, it's that it Mm. has to be a spouse and children, that it's not for intercourse, that it's just that you get this kind of um, chunk of time, right? Sure. Apparently, they think it encourages good behavior, it gives them a better chance of success when they reenter society. Okay. Great. um, There's a designated area like a trailer or a small cabin. Those kinds of things. Wonderful. So, yes, this says, as recently as 1995, 17 states had these programs, but today only four states have them. California, New York, Connecticut, and Washington. Um, mm. Some believe that it's because there's like public opinion that prisoners shouldn't be allowed luxuries. But, this is what I found interesting. Now, again, I want to make make it clear, I have not fact-checked this, but it says that the system began with an extremely racist premise. The very first person, sorry, the very first prison to allow conjugal visits was Parchment Farm, which is now known as Mississippi State Penitentiary. It began as a labor prison camp for black men in Mississippi. Prison authorities reportedly believed that if black men were allowed to have sexual intercourse, they would be more productive. At the work camp. Yeah. So every weekend, women would be driven in by the busload to fraternize with the prisoners. Over the years, the program was modified to incorporate families and cabins were built. Mississippi is one of the states that eventually did end these visits. Isn't that fascinating?
3: The idea that women were bussed
2: in. Isn't that gross? Horrifying. Horrifying. Also, so racist to be like... Well, we have to make sure these guys have sex so that they'll work harder. I mean, it's all fucking awful. Yeah, look, it it never gets better. And look, did I get an answer to my question? No, I don't know if female inmates are allowed them. I think now that in these states they're trying to form them as like family visits, that suggests to me that they probably do in the same way that male inmates do. But I guess what my instinct was, and I love that I was half right, was do these programs exist so that the male inmates could have sex? Like, was that the thing that was like, we can't take away their ability to have sex? Um and that isn't exactly the truth, but I just am horrified that my gut was onto there being something terrible about it. And I was absolutely right. Yeah, look,
3: I I didn't ever once consider the history. Yeah and now i'm glad i hadn't considered the history of it like i never would have guessed that that's where it would have started but again fight me on it if you want everyone but i think if if you're going to prison for a sex crime you should not be allowed those visits. I know that now those visits aren't specifically uh, about sex anymore. Well, so then of, maybe I'll change my mind about that.
2: Part of what I also read was that these are typically in medium or low um, security situations where sure. it's it's not like a maximum security prison is allowing this. They wouldn't allow right. that. However, it, I did read in one of these articles that there was one state that was allowing um, people who were convicted of sex crimes, and that feels, yeah. Where is this? This, this, this says, usually only allowed in medium security or lower prisons, but are now allowed for prisoners convicted of sexual assaults. Now again, the rules are different state to state. Sure, um, California and New York, for example, allow same-sex conjugal visits. Wonderful. Hey. Um, but yeah, you know. It doesn't feel great. No.
3: Um, I also, I mean, I'm a believer in if you genuinely murder someone, you shouldn't be allowed to get married. Oh, interesting. When you get out of prison. Sure. Great. But my hope is if you murder someone, you don't. My hope is if you genuinely murder the person and you're not there because you were innocent and got caught up in something or whatever. Like, if you genuinely murder someone, multiple people, you shouldn't be allowed to get married. Have a little time in the warden's office to say I do and then out in a trailer. Stop it.
2: You shouldn't get privileges of any kind. Not especially when it's that, using this as a specific example, yeah, vi- string of violent crimes, yeah, um, newly imprisoned, like it's not like someone had been in, serving a life sentence, has been in there for 15 to 20 years, has yep. been on good behavior that whole time, then is like, I'd like to get married. I don't know, maybe then it's like, but but you, I agree with you that it, it does feel like it's like, wow, there was a lot happening really early on, really early on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, listen, this took a wild, <laughs> wild journey. I couldn't be happier about it.
3: It did. It took a it took a lot of ways, but you know, my favorite thing that I've learned about this, and people are going to be like, Christy, where you been? Where the hell you been? It's that uh, Dick Van Dyke um, had a son. Named Barry, who was also an actor. And of course he was. Look at that fucking face. <laughs> that's my favorite thing I learned this week. Damn. Damn, Barry Van Dyke. I see you. I mean, that's obviously an old photo, but...
2: Blanche is in. On that note... <laughs> we thank you so much for coming with us on this wild ride, dear listeners. It's always a true pleasure for us, and we're glad that you're here along for the ride. If you haven't already, give us a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, at True Crime and Cocktails, on Twitter, at Not Detectives. If you'd like some more bonus content, hand over to patreon.com slash Cocktails, where we order a, uh, offer a subscription-based service where you can get four extra episodes a month Um, You can do a live monthly Q&A. There's all sorts of things, so check that out if you're interested. And, of course, the only place for official True Crime and Cocktails merch is, of course, TrueCrewMerch.com, so check that out as well if you're interested. Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode?
3: On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Missing
2: Wisconsin. Oh, we're doing it. We're doing another Missing episode. Those ones are... Fabulous. But they're all fabulous when Christy Oxborough's research- researching, so get Stop. out of town, Ash. Um, <laughs> Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Goodnight, Dick Van Dyke. Goodnight, Dick Van Dyke.